on today's Truth Factor discussion. We're going to look at the Apostle Paul as he takes a Mediterranean cruise fraught with peril. Don't tell my wife that because she still refuses to go on a cruise. Welcome to our study today. We are in Acts chapter 27, and we'll begin there shortly. But before we do that, I'd like to ask Paul, if you would, to let everybody know how they can participate in today's study. Be happy to do that, John, today. Uh, and anytime you'd like to find us and look at our social media pages, whether it be YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter, what you'd be looking for is Truth Factor Live. And uh, one of the easiest ways to interact with us is on the YouTube page. It has a chat there. We also can uh, receive comments on the Facebook page. And if you would be looking at truthfactor.com, you can go to the live viewing page or truthfactor. Uh, John, help me again. Truthfactorlive.com. You can look there also and see our uh, video here today. You can see it live or watch it at some other time. Maybe you'd like to send us an email. You can send that to questions at truthfactorlive.com or any one of our names, whether it be Paul or John or Brian or Tom or Shelton at truthfactorlive.com, and you can reach us that way. But if you want to send, like I said, that group chat, just send it to questions at truthfactorlive.com, and that'll go to all of us, and we'll try to give you a good response to that. Uh, if we can see it in time, we'll do that on the air. If not, we'll respond to you privately or on our next broadcast. John? Paul, I appreciate that. You know, some time back, I registered the domain truthfactor.live. At some point, I'll get with a program and say, just go to live.truthfactor.live. It'll be That'll a work. palindrome in internet domain, sort of. <laughs> Sounds good. Anyway. <laughs> All right, well, let me go ahead and turn the study over to Brian as we are beginning the next to the last chapter of Acts. If everything goes according to plan, we will conclude our study through the uh, book of Acts next Wednesday. And then we've got something planned following that. We'll talk to you more about that later. But Brian, let's talk more about this uh, cruise through the Mediterranean that Paul decided to take. Well, of course, at this time, we know that uh, from the last couple of chapters, Paul has petitioned to have his criminal case heard before Caesar. Interestingly enough, uh, in his last trial, they had agreed that he'd done nothing wrong and they might have let him go, but for this petition. But we also understand that this is going to be part of God's desire that he should speak the things he has to say before Caesar himself, before the ruler of the Roman Empire. So this voyage for him to go uh, from from the Middle East all the way to Italy is an important voyage. And it's also going to be one that is going to consume most of this chapter. So uh, without much more ado, Shelton, uh, I'm going to, I think I'll drop over to Shelton. He hasn't, he wasn't here last time and I'll have him do our first set of reading. Shelton, what I'm going to have you do, um, and there's a lot of great, really hard names in here too, so that you've got to be a little frustrated with me for giving it to you. Uh, if you just read verses 1 through 8 of Acts chapter 27, and uh, as I said, uh, good luck with these names and words, and uh, uh, give you the best on that. Sure, Brian, no problem. Looks like we'll be reading the first nine verses, is that correct, or first eight verses? Is that correct? Yes. Okay. It says, And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. 
So entering a ship of the uh, a ship of Adramitium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Sindus, uh, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of uh, Lycia. Thanks so much for reading that, Dan. Uh, good job with some of those words. Those are pretty tough. We've thrown a chat question out there for uh, anybody listening in uh, to give you some thought. Uh, we know of at least two of the companions, if and maybe there were only two, that are traveling with Paul. We'd like to know if you can tell us who they are. Uh, who were Paul's two traveling companions? And the second question is, is Paul the only prisoner on board? Uh, maybe that's just a little uh, easier question, a yes and no kind of question that you can uh, give us some thoughts and some feedback on. Uh, I'm going to jump over to Tom here because Tom is kind of our uh, resident expert now on Bible evidences. He's doing an important series on that. And Tom, one of the interesting things about this voyage is the concept of biblical accuracy and something we call falsifiability, which I want to be clear, that means the idea that the Bible presents itself as a document that could be proven to be true or false. It gives enough details, in other words that it can be examined to see if it has veracity to it. Uh, Tom, what is the particular value of maybe even the whole chapter here, this voyage and the accuracy of the Bible? Yeah, well, uh, uh, it shows uh, an understanding of the geography of the area. Uh, it, it, it's, and basically, when you look at the details that you find in this particular section it's not something that somebody would put if they were just writing a novel you know uh, and and that's one of the incredible things about the bible you know it it is written it's not written as a uh, it's not written as a a, a a novel it's written as a historical document and you get all these sections that from a from a doctrinal standpoint mean nothing you know and and uh uh they don't prove God or anything like that. But the fact that these types of things are in here shows that the writers were real people and they were writing about real events. Uh, and that's the incredible thing about this. It really is a remarkable story. And while at first we might think a lot of these uh, little details are kind of superfluous and not very valuable. In fact, as you said, Tom, they, they add an insight that makes this account much more credible. Um, I made a note to the to the members of the board here earlier about a book by an author named James Smith, and the book was titled The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. Uh, he was a maritime scholar, and he did an examination of this journey uh, from a maritime uh, uh, viewpoint, uh, describing how ships could travel, the amount of time they traveled, different ways that storms affected ships. And the conclusion was that the only way uh, this was written was as a first-person account 
of an actual voyage. It, it, it came across that that was the only way this account could have been written with the accuracy of the details. I think sometimes as, as Bible scholars, we kind of forget how valuable it is to have accurate geographical evidences like this. Uh, for example, you might look at the Book of Mormon, which claims and purports to be a, a document of uh, historiography. And of course, the geography of the Book of Mormon is all over the place. There's there places that don't exist. There's rivers where there are no rivers, mountains where there are no mountains. We often take it for granted that the Bible, when it specifies geographic locations, that they're always there, that we always find them. It really is a remarkable thing that we have in that instance. Um, I'm going to jump this question over to Paul Adams. Uh, Paul, why? So we, we know that the centurion Julius is Paul's guard. And we're told something kind of interesting in verse three, that Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friend. Now, it doesn't tell us why. Do you have any thoughts about that, about this, uh, st this statement that's kind of given a, a little bit of emphasis here? Well, I don't know for sure, but it may have been uh, because of Paul's demeanor that he uh, interacted with Julius in such a way that uh, that was an advantage to him uh, just by showing that kind of attitude that would be appropriate for Christ. You know, there is the, the chance that he could have been a Christian who was uh, given this duty uh, as part of his work. Uh, but as I look at this... Uh, those were just a couple of thoughts that I had about reading uh, this uh, section. Yeah, certainly there is no specific answer to that. Uh, it is it is an unusual note, though, that we get about this. Uh, um, about this, uh, Tom, did you have a comment to add to that? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I was going to say, you know, in these last few chapters, uh, we've seen a lot of interaction that Paul has had with in Caesarea, for example, with. Festus, Felix, Agrippa, and other things, and and one of the conclusions toward the end of uh, of the last portion there is, as they said, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, uh, he might have been let go. So you know, I I I suspect that this uh, uh, that Julius would have been filled in a little bit about what's going on, and he knows who Paul is. Add to that, it's very because Paul's an apostle and inspired. It's very likely Paul's been performing some miracles uh, uh, because uh, it, it, it's likely that he's been doing some prophesying because we find examples of that. So I think when you tie all those things together, Julius knows, uh, number one, that Paul's not a flight risk. And number two, he's important. And, and when I say he's not a flight risk, you know, he, he's, not a, he's not a murderer. He's not a thief. He's not a rebel against the Roman Empire. But but also he's viewed as somebody important because of the teaching that he's done and those types of things. So I think that factors in. That's a, that's a great comment. And like I said, it, it gives us a lot to think about as far as uh, some of the unique circumstances of what's going on with Paul. And, and a little later on, why this Roman centurion pays such heed to Paul in some instances and not in others. And I think that's that's something we want to think about too. Uh, there's just one final note that I thought I would add to this. Um, it's kind of interesting about the information we know about Roman ships at the time. In verse 6, it says that they found an Alexandrian ship, and, and later we'll see that it's uh, full of wheat uh, being taken in. And there's some, there's some uh, interesting information in the secular world about shipping in the Roman Empire. Uh, there's an account around 150 AD by a Roman writer of some of the ships that came 
from Egypt carrying grains and things like that. And one of the descriptions is just how large these ships were. Uh, I think a lot of times we fail to appreciate how big ancient ships could be. And Roman ships, uh, the one that he described was 150 feet in length. That's about three times the size of the Mayflower, by the way, to give you a sense of ship sizes. Uh, that it was about 150, 180 feet in length, and that it uh, uh, it was he, he talked about it about being four stories of worth of hull, and and so we're going to understand this will be a fairly large ship after a while, 275 passengers as well as the cargo. So it really is uh, it really is no small ship that they're taking their voyage on. So I think that's just something to keep in your mind as you picture this event as we move on. Uh, let's go back to our chat question now. I see that at least in, um, let me kind of uh, look at this a moment. I see that we have a couple of answers here uh, to these things. I think everybody has gotten the, uh, the gist of it. Uh, we'll go to Facebook first, if that's okay. Uh, Facebook, we got an answer from Dan Gatlin. And Dan Gatlin accurately points out that it's Aristarchus and Luke. Um, and Dan put that together, not because Luke is mentioned personally, but because he is the author of the book, and he uses that first-person pronoun. It's possible there were other companions. We know that Paul has other people with him in Rome later. But for now, these are the only two people that we know for certain are with him. Although in uh, YouTube, it's kind of interesting that uh, Gregor reminds us, too, that there's also Julius, uh, who, you know, I didn't think of it this way, but he is a traveling companion, I suppose, and I hadn't thought of that, but he really is a traveling companion in a way, being his guard. It mentions there are other soldiers, and, and Gregory accurately points out that later on we find out that there are other prisoners as well. Whether they're under the supervision of this same Julius or not isn't clear, but uh, we do note that there are other prisoners being taken as well. So those are some things that we want to consider. Our next section of reading, I'm going to go ahead and ask John, if he would, to read this one for us. Uh, I'm going to ask him to read Acts chapter 27, verses 9 through 20. Uh, so uh, if you can get that one for us, John, Acts chapter 27, verses 9 through 20. I can do that. Acts chapter 27. Let's start there with verse 9. We'll read through verse 20. Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was not dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they should reach Phoenix, the harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest, and winter there. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, Putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous wind, or a tempestuous headwind, arose called Euclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the Serta sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, 
All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Thank you very much. Uh, we put a chat question. It was kind of hard to come up with a question for you to think about. So maybe we're looking for some answers, just some more uh, uh, picking up some details in the reading uh, that you might uh, you might be able to help us with. Why do you think it seems as though they are in a rush to get to Rome? What uh, what kinds of things might be affecting their willingness to to move forward whenever they both have advice and they have evidences around them that this isn't a good choice. Your, your thoughts on that, uh, if you have any thoughts about why that might be, uh, we appreciate getting to hear those. So let's first of all go to chapter uh, 27 and verse 9. Paul gives them a warning there in verses 9 and 10 uh, about these things. And I'm wondering about this. Does this look like a an inspired warning or not? And I'll just kind of throw that out to the members of the board. Uh, if you uh, have a thought about that, what do you think? Is this an inspired warning? Paul has been given this warning by the Holy Spirit, or is this maybe something else? Well, there's oh. two factors that I think you're alluding to there, uh, Brian, as, as you look at this. One is that it may have been uh, certainly a divine revelation that uh, certain, Paul's been told previously there are certain things that are likely to happen, not likely, certain things that will happen to him uh, as he serves uh, the Lord. But also there's just simply the natural course of things that there's seasons of the year in the Mediterranean that are easier travel and some that are more difficult. And so I just thought I'd kind of lay out there the, the two possibilities and see what our what our other brothers have to say. I've always kind of taken it that he's He's received a divine warning, but but I could I would not argue with someone who was adamant, looking at that a, a little differently. Uh, you said it well, Paul. I think I think what we have are two choices here: is Paul uh, is Paul looking at this from his own perceptions, or has he received the divine warning? Uh, I, who I think Tom, you had a thought. Yeah, you know, uh, all throughout this chapter, when we get further down, we find the hand of God is in this, and and so I mean, I. It would not surprise me if this was inspired. Uh, and, and I would base that on the fact that you got Paul and we'll deal with this Paul versus the helmsman. <laughs> you know, you know, you listen to the sea captain. Uh, the sea captain would know all the natural things that were going on, including the seasons and the seas. And the reason he would attempt to sail is because he thinks it's safe to do so. Uh, Paul has some kind of information that uh, he's not a seaman, you know, uh, uh, as far as we know and so on. And so I believe it leans toward being inspired. And I'd go to verse 21 when, when he says, you should have listened to me. And uh, uh, that would be my thoughts on that. But again, I totally agree with Paul. I mean, we're not told whether it's inspired or not. Shelton, do you have any thoughts? I thought uh, Tom said kind of the direction I was thinking of it in is we're not told, but to for us to know, at least by occupation, Paul wasn't even a fisherman uh, or somebody who would have spent his time on the seas. Uh, uh, and like like uh, like Tom said, with the helmsman being one who would have known the seasons and whether it would have been safe to travel at that time or not, seems like Paul had a little bit of extra information that uh, just a tent maker, you know, probably wouldn't have had on his own but again we're not told so and john do you have any thoughts on it you know i do 
And it's going to be different than what the other guy said, or else it'd just be vain repetition. Uh, <laughs> it very well could have been um, a divine warning. What's interesting in the text, when you look there at verse 9, he, he appeals to because the fast was already over. And a little footnote in the on digital Bible that I've got says the Day of Atonement puts it late September or early October. Now, the reason why I don't view it as a full-on prophecy, though, is because he says, I perceive that this voyage will end with loss of cargo and loss of our lives. And it doesn't end with the loss of their lives. Now, we know why, of course. You know, we, we, or at least it is our perception that God intervened and saved them. Um, so it, I could see it being as Paul was just concerned about what time of year it was through his experience in taking ship travels in the past. Maybe he felt like it'd be better to hang around. Maybe he had another reason that he wanted to stay in the area through the winter months. You know, I'm, of course, grabbing and guessing and stuff like that. Um, but I don't think there's enough detail here to say for certain that it was the Holy Spirit warning him like he has in other times. So I think it's very, it could be very, very likely. I wouldn't have a problem if the conclusion was either way with it, but there's the other side. So, so I appreciate the, the thoughts, guys. Yeah, very good thoughts. And the only significance here might be that at first we're told there's a loss of life, and then we're told there won't be if certain directions are followed, and that, uh, that kind of is an interesting thing to consider. We might consider, too, the word that Paul uses here when he says, I perceive. Uh, the Greek word there, the arrow, uh, we get the word theorize, and it's the idea of observing something and coming to a conclusion about it. Um, Paul may be describing, and I kind of lean more towards it not being an inspired message, that Paul may be describing here from his own perspective that I'm. it's my observation. We note that in other places when Paul has a revelation, as later in the chapter, he'll specifically say it was a revelation from God as opposed to uh, something that he had come to himself. So it, it's not really too significant other than if it is a revelation, it's interesting that it would be something that, that will change uh, over time. And if it's not a revelation, it's interesting that, uh, that Paul might make this speculative statement and then later uh, the Holy Spirit would clarify it in a different direction. So either way, uh, it is an interesting thing that we can consider there. Brian, um, uh, when you look at that, uh, kind of going along with what, what you and John were saying is that they even have a name for this kind of storm that happens this time of the year, uh, Eurocladon, if I'm saying that right. And uh, someone said, uh, I read a thing about it, said it's similar to the word that would be for typhoon. You know, there's certain seasons that are just known for having really severe storms and uh, they even have a name for it. So I, I, I don't object to either either viewpoint on that. You didn't like my pronunciation of it? I think if I ever became a wrestler, that might be my name. That would be a good uh, sounding name. Uh, John, I didn't know how you said it. Uh, I wasn't, I certainly was not correcting you. Yeah. Euro Clyden. Euro Clyden. I'll, <laughs> I'll take either one of those. You got the rock and you got Clyde. Yeah. I, I like Paul's way better personally, but yeah. Well, they sound good. <laughs> Uh, um, you know, real quick, uh, just thinking about this, we recently engaged in a study of Second Corinthians, not uh, not too long ago, and uh, it was pointed out in Second Corinthians eleven twenty five, and this is in the middle of Paul describing some of the things that he suffered. It makes the point there that uh, three times I was shipwrecked, and one of the interesting points that was made, and I hadn't really thought about that. 
is that's before this voyage. So the point would be is from a natural standpoint, you know, Paul, you might say Paul did have experience because uh, because uh, he had witnessed circumstances that led to shipwrecks three times. And more than likely, that would have been the result of weather. So, I mean, so there's something to think about along that line. That's interesting. Uh, real interesting thought, Tom. Uh, he is kind of a, he's an old hand at being shipwrecked at this point. I, you know, we, we don't think about that in that application, but you're right. Second Corinthians was written before this. So that's a real interesting observation there, Tom. Um, so Paul presents his point. The Roman centurion is looking at everybody and he decides to move forward. Uh, anybody uh, think there's a lesson there about do you listen to the man of God or do you listen to the ship's master? Absolutely. What you well, think at least there is for us. Yeah, I think I think that they they learn from it too, uh, as we'll read later on. Without getting too far ahead of you there, Brian, but uh, I think especially from what we see coming up, yeah, they 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 realize that they should have listened to him. You know, Shelton, I think I think of today we have a lot of experts in the world that tell us a lot of things that they're certain about. And then the word of God tells us uh, things from a very different perspective. And it, a lot of people want to listen to the experts in the world. And I and I can't help but to think that there's a nice lesson here about that danger of, of thinking of, you know, whether it is in people's behavior or whether it is in the fate of the world. You know, uh, that the, the Bible tells us one thing and experts tell us the other and I think that ironically, there's a shipwreck of faith for many who listen to the world. So um, so there's kind of an interesting thing about some of the language there that they use about, first of all, securing the, the skiff, which is, uh, I would say that's probably like not a lifeboat, but it would be comparative to the lifeboat. They secure it. They throw the tackle over with their own hands. Now, Paul and his companions have told everybody, hey, don't do this. And now the ship's in trouble. Uh, anybody find it kind of uh, interesting that that instead of sitting back and saying, well, this is your mess, you fix it, that they jump in and that they're actually helping with the work of the ship? Anybody have any thoughts about that? Well, I mean, it's either do it or die. You know, and it, like I said, it might be a temptation to say, well, you know, this is your problem. You know, you, you didn't listen to us. You, it's your problem. But instead, uh, they're jumping in and they're doing the work of sailors, it sounds like, you know, by, by doing these different things. And, you know, I almost wonder, Tom, that we don't see here maybe an example for us to say, you know, we're while we live in the world, we're still, you know, part of, uh, you know, along with them. We're still in our communities and things like that, that it might really... Uh, uh, be an example to us that even though we want to say, hey, the world has made its own mess, let it, let it, you know, let it fall apart in it, that maybe we have some obligation to try to lend the hand to help. Um, he kind of goes on in verse four to say, or I'm sorry, um, not in verse four, in verse uh, 19 and uh, 20, he talks about all hope being given up. It's kind of interesting, the Greek word there for given up or abandoned means uh, thrown over or cast overboard. So what's that kind of interesting? Because what does it follow up on them doing? What have they just done in verse 19? Threw the tackle over. Yeah. So they threw the tackle overboard, and then and then Luke says, and we threw our hope overboard too. Yeah. So it's kind of a, a neat play on words that he has there. 
Um, let's go back to our chat question if we can. Uh, if we'll grab and see what kind of answers we've gotten to that. Um, and looking here, I see Gregor's given us some stuff uh, uh, that kind of helps. This was not an easy question, as I said. It just didn't have a specific answer, just more of a, you know, what, what kind of things could it be? So here is Gregor's thoughts. The end of the summer, the wind blows north off the Sahara. In the winter, they ship from, from the north. Trying to sail upwind with a square-rigged boat is almost impossible. He had um, one before that. Oh, oh. Mine, mine doesn't show that. Uh, he goes, well, this, and, okay, and this is actually to the idea... Um, I'm sorry. He goes, summer winds okay, off but, of Africa are fierce to this day, and taking too long will tend towards fall, where the winds of the area will shift from the north, making an approach to Rome almost impossible. So, so, so Gregor kind of makes the point to say that their rush is to try to beat this weather, yeah. um, and that seems to be as good an account as any. We yeah. notice that it's the ship's owner that's part of this push. They have a, a, a large uh, amount of grain, and it could be about money, too. It could be about the prisoners. There's probably a lot of answers as to why it could have been that they're in such a rush. Um, I know, too, that Gregor actually gave us an answer for them um, helping with the sailing of the ship. Uh, he says survival is a powerful motivator. Community can be established among enemies when survival is involved. So that's a good observation for us to think about, too. Let's continue on now in Acts chapter 27. Uh, let's read verses 21 through 26. Um, and I think I'll ask uh, Tom, or uh, uh, yeah, Tom, if he would, to read Acts chapter 27, verses 21 through 26. Okay. We find here, uh, but after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster or loss. And now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. So uh, here we have Paul's uh, encouragement now, and Paul uh, now reveals to them this uh, this message that he has received, that in this case he uh, um, describes here, I've just lost my place here a second, um, he describes here that an angel has appeared to him and delivered to him a message that he must stand before Caesar, and God has granted to him all those who are sailing with him. So here is the message that he has. Now, his message is, too, that while everybody with him could be saved, the ship will be lost. And to our to our audience, here's a simple uh, question. Is that, a, is that a very reasonable thing to have said or a very likely thing to say, that a large ship will, will be lost? And, and he suggests it's going to run aground and be lost, and yet everybody on it be saved. Is that a statement that would have been something that people would have uh, said, well, that's a very reasonable thing at that moment? Or is is maybe we think about this statement for a second. Is this actually kind of an unreasonable thing to suggest that a great large ship could be lost and no loss of life? So tell us what you think about that if you get a second or two. It's kind of interesting when Paul says here that he's going to stand before Caesar and that God has granted 
him all those who are sailing with him. Anybody have a thought about that statement, Paul, where it says that? Uh, Paul, if you would. Well, I, I did. I, to me, it, it indicated that there's some level of camaraderie, or at least that if everyone, if God decided just to save Paul and everyone else was just allowed to perish in this terrible shipwreck, uh, that Paul would have suffered because of that. Uh, now, whether it's their, their camaraderie, uh, whatever relationships he had built, uh, and so it, it seems to be that the, the word that, that kind of gets my attention here is granted. God has granted. He, he's allowed this to be uh, for the sake of Paul. Uh, and so Paul seems to have some relief about that. You know, and, and you know, there, there is, you ever know someone who's had a, a terrible fire or been in a terrible accident and their car is totaled, but there's no loss of life. And people will say, well, Things can be replaced, but you know people can't. And so there seems to be that kind of an idea here, is that there is, um, on behalf of Paul, that there will be no loss of life. And I'll not get into the question that you've asked the chat room, but I think that that kind of ties in with this as well. It absolutely does. It, it sure does. It's kind of hard not to want to cross over those thoughts. Anybody else have a thought about that? Um, I, I, let me throw a thought out there. I was thinking of something Jesus had said about being the salt of the earth and and some of the language about that. Anybody have any other thoughts, though, to, to bring to this? You know, I was thinking of, for example, the... Oh, oh I'm sorry, John, go ahead. Oh, that's fine. Um, just one thought that came to mind. We I mentioned earlier that we don't know whether or not God actually intervened. And it's very possible that the outcome of this wreck was all natural. But what was told to Paul was that it would take place where he would he would live. So in other words, the the, the wreck could have been by natural occurrence, um, without any divine intervention, you know, supernatural if you would. But the angel reassuring Paul shows that the Lord knew that it would be fine and he would he would be all right and everybody with him. It's a, it's a great uh, uh, the idea great also of granted here probably well to me seems to be an indication that Paul was probably praying about these things and that yeah. his prayer his prayer has been granted you know it, if you think about that Paul he's been uh, they haven't seen the sun for two weeks they've been thrown around in the ship they've lost control of the ship uh, you might say they're not even able to eat anymore so I'm going to suggest he's been praying fervently perhaps uh that maybe there's been some real terror. You know, you remember the apostles on the ship with Jesus and their terror in just a few hours. And imagine that that has gone on now for weeks. Um, I, 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 frankly, I can't fathom what that would be like of never having been a sailor. I've been on some ships that were being roughed around a little, but, uh, uh, you know, it's, it really is a pretty, uh, a pretty dramatic uh, thing to think about. Um, Tom, do you have a thought to add? I, I see something popped up. I didn't know if you wanted to add it. You're muted. Yeah, I was trying to get to my mute button. No, I, I didn't have much of a thought on this. I was just uh, putting some information in there on the, on the okay, okay. chat room question. And, and it's I, probably to be disregarded. But Sure. Well, you know, one thing I was thinking about is that Jesus tells us that we're the salt of the earth, that in some ways we're the you know, we're the thing that preserves others. And, you know, I can't help but to see perhaps there's some of that here as well, that 
that these people's lives are going to be spared. And it's in part because Paul has an important mission. Now, I, I want to be careful to say that that's merely just an observation of, of what's going on here. But but the point is, is that we understand that, you know, in times past, God has preserved communities because of the few righteous people who is at least offered to do so. And so that perhaps, you know, what's going on here is that it's it's that they've been granted to Paul in part because Paul's righteousness and his work will end up having a preserving effect on all those aboard. And so it's certainly worth thinking about, again, that we being the salt of the earth have have a preserving effect in some ways on those around us that that they're blessed because of our presence. And even if they don't always appreciate that, you know, that that our presence in the world is a blessing to them, that that's a that's an important idea that we might think about. So at this point, two weeks in, the storm is bad. Paul gets up one morning and says, don't worry, everything's going to be OK. Is there any evidence of that beyond his faith? No. <laughs> no, I mean this is this is one of those moments where it's purely by faith and not by sight, uh, you know. And and it's very interesting that he says all this, and uh, uh, you know that uh, it, it doesn't seem to me, you know, he says go ahead and eat, and it'll be a while before they do eat. So I think that's kind of interesting that maybe I'm not sure if that means this, but maybe nobody really takes him to heart yet that they're still pretty, uh, they're still pretty destitute could be the case. Well, Brian, did you see the the documentary? that came out years ago on being stranded on a deserted island called Gilligan's Island. They had tried to, to simulate what it would be like, and they couldn't eat while on a rocking ship. <laughs> and now back to our study. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think of uh, Abbott and Costello as the food goes back and forth and they can't get to it. So yeah. <laughs> uh, that might have been part of it. Huh? Um, so I, I, at this point, let's go ahead and go back to our chat. Uh, like I said, again, we were... Um, this chat question, probably pretty simple. Just your thoughts on this. How likely is it that you could know that a ship was going to be destroyed or, you know, uh, it was going to strike and, and maybe even break apart? Uh, is Well, we know that's what's going to happen, but uh, to some of that, what, what's the likelihood? And Gregor kind of gives us a thought back on that. Uh, Gregor remarks about the idea that there are sailors who never learn to swim. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. And in fact, it's something I was thinking about too, Gregor, a little further on of the numbers of people, just how few people in the ancient world could swim. So the idea that you could have a ship lost with no loss of life is pretty remarkable. And as you say, it's at least amazing, if not miraculous. And, and we'll go with that. We'll say, you know, at the very least, that is an amazing idea that you could have a ship lost like this and you could do so without it, anything providential might be the word uh, Tom throws at us that really fits it the best. And I, I would agree with that, Tom. You know, there's a, I was kind of joking a moment ago. There, there is a song uh, about uh, a ship, a cargo ship that sunk uh, in uh, one of the great lakes, you know, which is basically very similar to the um, Mediterranean Sea. And, and in looking at that, you'd also notice that uh, that's the Edmund Fitzgerald. You probably know you oldest me may remember the song but uh, all 29 of the crew died not one survived uh that shipwreck so uh, and yeah. i think we see other other kind of similar instances in, in terrible storms uh the likelihood of all perishing versus all surviving is the overwhelming likelihood right you know we even see today with our with our incredible safety measures uh and our incredible uh uh, uh, efforts to, you know, to save lives that even 
when a ship sinks slowly that oftentimes there's somebody lost on board. But especially as Gregor points out, in ancient times when there are no safety measures, nobody knows how to swim, or few people know how to swim is our understanding. That again, what Paul has just stood up and said is a remarkable statement, probably one that a lot of people would struggle to believe at first, you know, and, and again, uh, it just it's it's just a, a powerful thing for us to think about. Um, let's jump over to uh, Acts 27, verses 27 through 40, and uh, let's read uh, coming up close to the end. And um, I think, Paul, I think you're next on our reading list. Am I correct, or did Tom read last? Uh, Tom read last, I think. So, uh, Paul, if you would read uh, Acts 27, verses 27 through 40. Sure. Uh, be happy to do that. Acts 27, 27 through 40. And I'm reading out of the New King James Version. It says, Now when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And they took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be fifteen fathoms. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have waited, and continue without food, and eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. And they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land. But they observed a bay with a beach, onto which they planned to run the ship, if possible. And they let the anchors, excuse me, and they let go the anchors and left them in the sea, meanwhile loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. You know what I think is so remarkable about this story is, is that it's so vivid in the language. Um, again, uh, describing this, it's incredible to think this is a physician describing this story, and yet all of his language, all of his descriptiveness uh, is just so powerful to get an image of this, of this last moments coming up on this ship. We've thrown a chat question out there, just a, kind of a um, something I wonder about, and I wonder if anybody has some thoughts on this. Uh, I've often wondered why it was they were told that everybody had to stay on the ship in order to be saved. And so I just whatever your thoughts are on that or anything unusual you see about that statement, we'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Why or what do you think about that statement, that they all had to stay on board if they were to be saved? Which kind of around that event, uh, we saw the Apostle Paul telling the centurion in verse 31, unless these men remain on the ship, you can't be saved. And what did the Roman soldiers do then? They cut off the skiff. You know what's interesting about that is that's their lifeboat. Um, 
you know, if I were the Roman soldiers, I'd say, you know, hey, you guys get out. We're getting in the skiff. But instead of doing that, they cast, cut it off and let it drift away. And that's actually, to me, kind of remarkable um, that that a moment happens. Uh, what does that show about, you know, this Roman centurion listening to Paul now? But it shows that they've learned their lesson, I guess, in a way. You know, they didn't listen to him about the travel in the first place and got all in this trouble. And Paul told them that he should have, you know, listened to them. And then when he tells them this, he believes them now and, and listens to him. It's a completely unreasonable request or, or action to cut away the only form of maybe escape from that ship that you have, uh, like you mentioned. And it's just almost unfathomable that they did listen and, they, and that they cut the skiff away or the lifeboat. Uh, and it shows that they absolutely 100% trust this man. They've spent some time with him on the, uh, you know, they, they've spent some time with him on the ship now and, and have listened to him and, and understand. And, and it also, to me, though, doesn't just show their trust for Paul, but it shows Paul's trust in what the angel told him, that, uh, that all of these ones on this ship, including you, will be saved if you stay on this ship. Uh, even for a man like Paul, that, that that lifeboat, you know, was his escape from the ship as well. So it shows their trust in Paul and Paul's trust in, in God. Yeah, I think that's really, I think what you're saying is really neat there to think about the idea that this does show um, that there's a lot more trust in going, uh, going forward with what Paul has to say. And again, I think what's interesting, what you said there is it could have been Paul's escape. And yet, you know, again, his trust is that everybody has to stay on board, which, which, as I said, is, is really unusual. It's not, it's not an intuitive statement. And, and I don't want to go too far into that, uh, other than maybe our, our chat audience has a little more to say about that. It's an unusual statement though. It's not necessarily a logical statement as far as, uh, uh, what needs to happen here. Um, so kind of an unusual thing. I've read a couple of commentators who were questioning about Paul's breaking of bread. Um, I, I don't think anybody would think if this was communion itself, a couple of commentators threw that idea out there, but uh, for one thing, it's, it doesn't seem to be at all related to that, but have we talked about communion at all? Is there any language that Paul having been on this ship for several weeks uh, was, was taking communion at any point? You know, in fact, it says very specifically that they had not eaten anything for some time. Um, what does that tell us about, you know, let's say being on a voyage and, you know, and taking communion? Oh, I can't hear you, John. He was opening a can of worms. Yeah, I was going to say, before you answer that question, Brian, I'll throw your mailing address up there real quick. <laughs> you know, now... <laughs> I say that jokingly, Brian. I'm I'm of the persuasion that when it comes to the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, that that is the work of a local congregation. And so, when you go and you even when you're traveling, you find an established congregation to worship with, and you break bread with them on the first day of the week. I don't think there's scriptural authority to say, well, I'm, I'm going to be on my journey and I'm going to be traveling and I'll just take it with me and take a few minutes on Sunday morning to partake of it. I just don't see it in the scripture. So, John, so yes. can I say, then does this account uh, kind of support that? I would think so. If, if there was any worship service at all, anything of that nature, it is not recorded. And I think right, Luke right. might have recorded it. Yeah. yeah, and it seems, it seems pretty clear that when he said they haven't eaten anything for weeks, uh, like I said, I think we would... 
look at it that way. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think it does kind of lean towards that idea of they're not thinking of this as something they can do just themselves. Uh, I think we've already seen that in the book of Acts. And I think it is something that uh, that we ought to consider for just a few moments. Uh, anybody else have another thought about that? Well, I, I do. And uh, I, I agree that the Lord's Supper is something that's to be eaten among other Christians, among a local congregation. And uh, I don't like the idea, well, we'll just not worry about whether we can find a local church or not. Uh, we'll just take it with us. And I, I just don't see any example of that. But I would add to that that Paul has not just decided to take a Mediterranean cruise. We've kind of kind of joked about that. But he's not decided, hey, I'm going to go on a uh, three-week or, or how many weeks it would end up being cruise, and I'm not going to worry about not being able to assemble with saints. Uh, this was beyond his control. This is beyond his ability. He's in custody. It's not a uh, just a planned vacation trip uh, is the only point that I would add to what's already been said. Yeah. And I have known brethren who will take like a multi-week cruise. And what they do is they will meet with other Christians on the cruise and have a little mini worship service. And that that may be okay, but for my study of the scriptures, um, I, I, I would be concerned myself. You know. I think this would have been a good example if that was something that we were okay to do. This would have been a good opportunity to have demonstrated that. You would think so, yeah. I think Paul would have used it as that opportunity if, if it was something he wanted to make that point of. And Shelton, that's, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, that's that's kind of how I see it, too. Um, it's a great, great divisive issue. We have settled it once and for all here <laughs> on Truth Factor. Let's see. Where Guys, is there that? are a lot of different viewpoints on this, but uh, I do think that this is an example to us that kind of gives some sense of, and I see my name up there with my email address, uh, <laughs> I do think, though, that this is a good example for us to consider that uh, that we we would I think we would have seen something a little more uh, demonstrative for us that we might understand about that. And that, again, the importance of finding local congregations whenever possible, as Paul said, it simply wasn't impossible for Paul. But uh, that's kind of a confusing statement. As well, Paul, the truth factor said, it was impossible for Paul, the apostle, to have uh, found a place to worship because of his circumstances wasn't his choice. So yeah, Brian, I would also just, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I would also just say that, that as you look at this, uh, when I've known folks who, who did feel comfortable, maybe they were uh, going somewhere, they were, you know, whatever, and they made some alternative arrangement. Uh, I don't jump all over their case. I just, it's my conviction uh, as yeah. I look at what this teaches that, that I need to find a, a local congregation to worship with when I'm, when I'm traveling you know, at least for the purpose of taking the Lord's Supper and worshiping on the Lord's Day. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and it's hard because I think for a lot of people, and, and again, not not to dwell too much on this subject, I think for a lot of people it's a it's a matter of conscience, too. And so I don't, uh, you know, I want to be careful how, how, to, how hard to address that. But I think there's something important for us to consider here about that, um, to that point. Um, well, Brian, here. I'm going to, can I throw one one more thing out there? Oh, I know yeah. you say you don't want to belabor this as, you know, I have known Christians who would berate other Christians who are planning a trip willingly that would potentially put them on a Sunday where they can't worship the saints. And when you look at the book of Acts, this isn't the only boat trip that Paul took that looks like he was on the boat come the first day of the week. Um, and think about uh, what was it in Acts chapter um, 
Oh, uh, what was it? Remind me when the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, chapter 20, seventeen. Acts twenty, yeah. Acts 20, yeah. Um, when you look at Acts nineteen coming into twenty, there's a strong well, likelihood Acts 11, that. By the way. That was a strong likelihood that Paul was on the boat on the first day of the week. And that wasn't a have to, like here he's being taken to Rome. That was a personal choice for him to go by boat. And so there there might be times, you know, where a decision we make may prevent us from worshiping on the first day of the week because of where we're at if there are no saints local. And that's John at Truth Factor. Yeah, yeah in all fairness, there we go. <laughs> yeah, there so, you know, like I said, I think there's a lot of different views of the, or uh, ways of looking at this. I, I think fundamentally, number one, I think all of us would, would be 100% in agreement to say uh, that it's it's an important thing that we should make every effort, you know, that uh, uh, there can be no question about that. I don't know, like I said, how, how more we can emphasize the significance of that. Uh, secondly, though, like I said, here we see some, uh, some language of the apostles, uh, you know, as they're you know, as they had an opportunity here to give us an example that they didn't, I think that's worth our time to consider as well. Um, so uh, maybe we'll just go ahead and uh, to, for the sake of time, we'll uh, kind of uh, run back to our chat room and then we'll finish up the chapter. So if we can jump back to our chat room now, I know that we've got uh, uh, some thoughts on this. Um, we have that in our YouTube chat. Right now, uh, Gregor helped us out. Why might it have been necessary that everyone remain on board for salvation? Gregor suggested uh, could have been a part of rowing, you know, since the tackle was tossed, stabilizing the boat. Uh, uh, all of those are things. There might have been some very practical reasons for this, and that certainly could have been the case. Um, I I would have accepted as a, as a satisfactory answer. There's a lot of different thoughts that went through my mind. Maybe it was meant to be a symbolic. Maybe it was a typology of our our commitment to the local church or, you know, this, in a way, I see this ship storm uh, a little bit like a local church and, you know, not abandoning it when times are perilous and things like that. Uh, you know, I see a lot of uh, uh, typology and, and metaphorical application to that. But frankly, we just don't know exactly why, um, other than it is important here that they all remain on the ship. And it's so important that if somebody had left the ship, uh, lives would have been lost. So I think that that's just a remarkable thing to think about. Um, last three verses here, and I'm going to throw it back to Tom, if he would, to finish us off uh, verses 41 through 44 of the chapter, last four verses there, and kind of get us uh, finished up here, Tom. Okay. Uh, but striking a place where two seasons met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow struck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. So this is a remarkable uh, event, and in some ways, I would say this is one of the most remarkable parts of the story, and that is kind of going back to where we had said before, the likelihood that everybody would survive this. But first of all, one of the most interesting things that to me is that the Roman soldiers uh, are looking, considering the idea of killing all the prisoners. What's the logic of that? Uh, well, you know, Roman 
as we understand from uh, history, or at least as I understand, Roman soldiers were responsible for those who they were entrusted with. And basically, if you let a prisoner escape, you paid for it. You, you paid for it with your life, I or I don't know if there was other penalties, but you paid for it with your life. You know, we have the example in Acts chapter uh, uh, 16 with the Philippian jailer, you know, fearing they had escaped, he draws his sword to kill himself. Paul says, don't do that. So very likely, uh, the odds of a prisoner escaping and hiding, uh, they didn't want to take a chance with that. And so it was probably standard procedure. Well, if something happens, kill the soldiers or, or kill the prisoners. After all, they are prisoners. And so that would be my reason. Tom, let me throw this out at you. you I think you were actually going to say it and didn't. Um, what is the likelihood that if a ship floundered like this and everybody swam to shore, the prisoners could escape? Yeah, uh, it, uh, yeah. Depending on the island, I mean, I mean, it, it it's very much likely that that one or more of them could, you know, take advantage of the opportunity and flee. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting uh, that they're going to do that, and then and then uh, the centurion, you know, brings a stop to this because of his uh, uh, his interest in Paul. And again, that might go back to our conversation earlier about why was the why did Julius permit Paul to go around that there might have been some kind of more personal you know, relationship there, too? But certainly he's very interested. A man who is receiving visions from angels would be somebody I'd want to protect and I'd want to take care of. Um, this came up before Gregor had mentioned this, and I had just suggested to you that the, the concept of swimming. Anybody have a thought about the likelihood that you could have a bunch of people that are able to swim? I don't know anything about that back yeah. then. So. I know I know in ancient times, um, you know, swimming was really not something many people uh, did. In fact, during the Middle Ages, it, drowning is the number one cause of accidental death uh, because most people just don't know how to swim. Uh, a lot of times it was considered bad luck, even until the 19th century, for sailors to learn how to swim, uh, which is kind of funny to us, but that's not too unusual. So... And typically in times past, learning how to swim was not something many people engaged in. So the idea here is that you floundered your ship. It's now broke apart on the sandbar and that uh, uh, that as the ship is coming apart, they're grabbing pieces of it to go to shore because a lot of people probably can't swim. And, and being washed up on the shore like this really, again, brings about that remarkable, remarkable moments in what's happening here. Um which is where we bring ourselves to a stop and we're just, we're at our time now. Does anybody have any final thoughts or comments to bring in? Let's kind of go around here for a second and I'll, I'll start with, uh, I'll start with Tom. Tom, do you have any final thoughts to throw out there? No, we, we just find that God's plan is being fulfilled and uh, uh, we have things happening here. Uh, we see the miraculous and the fact of an angel appearing to Paul and so on, but we also see, God managing things using natural means and so on. And, and just re remember, uh, as Paul said in Philippians chapter uh, four, I, or uh, three, three or four, I, or chapter one, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Somewhere in Philippians. You know, Tom, you, what you, is the word we use whenever God uses circumstances in the world to bring about his purposes? It would be the word providence. You know, I, I mean, he can work providentially. So we find everything at work. Uh, the book of Romans talks about we know all things work together for good uh, to those who love him. And I know that's a misunderstood passage, but the point of that passage is God is going to accomplish his will. And we, 
we just see that here. He's told Paul, you're going to go to Rome. And uh, a shipwreck's not going to stop it. This is a powerful example of the working of the providence of God. Thanks a lot. Uh, Shelton, have you got anything you want to add uh, as far as our to our study or thoughts? I thought I was muted, but I wasn't. No, I'm I'm good. I appreciated the study, Brian. I, I enjoy this chapter. Lots of good lessons to learn. So, uh, Paul, you got anything you want to throw out there? No, I, I appreciate what Tom said there, that uh, in all these things that seem to be kind of random and kind of seem to be uh, very uh, scattered in, in the way they happen, that God's hand of providence is clearly there with Paul. Uh, and let's turn it back to John. And John, if you got any final comments and wrap us up. Well, um, Brian, it's too bad we didn't have some sort of illustrative map that, that oh. would, have, would have shown this. <laughs> I Wait, forgot about that. Let yeah. me bring it up here real quick. Please do, since, uh, since I made you go to all the trouble of finding it for me and doing it. Uh, <laughs> I apologize. I meant to pull that map out as we read uh, at verse 20, and I forgot. I'm going to give myself a, a more specific note. This is an, a, a map that demonstrates, and, and I've always liked the squiggly lines that kind of indicate the uh, absence of really what was going on there until they got to the island of Malta there. <laughs> anyway, I just had to bring that up there real quick. Yeah, I apologize, John. I, I made John uh, go to a lot of trouble to get that map, and then I forgot to use it. <laughs> Not at all. Now, Brian, I appreciate um, your leading us through the study today. You did a good job with that, definitely. And we want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us for our study today. If everything goes according to our scheduling, we will conclude our study through the book of Acts next Wednesday. And that will be with Acts chapter 28. And it's a very fitting ending. I mean, there's a lot more we'd like to have known, but as far as Luke pulling the story, uh, the, the account of Paul's travels to a close, We'll see it nicely done in Acts chapter 28. And with that being said, we hope that you can join us again as we continue our studies next week at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. That's noon in the Eastern Time Zone. 9 a.m. on the Pacific Coast. 10 a.m. Mountain Time. And that's right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful week.